Uh, hey everyone, welcome back to Blurred Box. I'm Chloe. I'm Haven. I'm Pooja. And I'm Sophie. We're four online students from Stanford University's online high school. We bring you interesting topics and interesting discussions about world events and our lives in an online school every single week. And we invite guests to take part in our discussions and share their views because we love hearing different perspectives. Today we're joined by our division head of mathematics in our school. Hey, Mr. Breggy, um, tell us a bit about yourself and just give our audience a sense of, you know, who you are and uh, what you do. Hi. Well, thanks a lot. I'm, this is my sixth year, just finishing up my sixth year at Stanford OHS. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm the division head for math. My division also includes computer science and economics, which is the subject that I've currently been teaching. I've been teaching both the AP microeconomics and the advanced topics course in microeconomics for the last five years. And so I've been, been focusing on econ for all of that time. Prior to coming to Stanford, um, I spent 11 years in the charter school world where um, I helped to get a charter school off the ground and we ended up building the network into a, a number of schools. So we, we started with a freshman class of 75 and built it up to, I think when I left, we had 2000 students. Um, prior to that, I spent a number of years in private industry of doing everything from biotechnology to insurance to working at a dot-com in the, in the dot-com bubble era as well, where I was working on data. So I've had a lot of different things I've had a chance to do over my years. Um, but I have to say that teaching at OHS is one of the most fun things I've ever done. Very nice. So our topic for today and kind of what we're still talking about is the COVID-19 pandemic epidemic. It's still going on. It's very hot right now. And particularly with your background in economics, I think that's just a word that we all throw around. And to be honest, we don't know too much about it. We might need your help kind of like dissecting that and what that particular means, particularly in this situation of COVID-19. So as our episode title kind of concurs, we're talking about the socioeconomic impact of COVID-19. Would you be able to give us some starter details or like a crash course into kind of what that means or in general, what that might mean to you? Sounds good. Well, th thanks a lot. And let's, let's start this out by not underestimating the human impact of COVID-19 and all of the people who have, who have suffered because of this, the people who have been injured, um, who, who are currently in the hospital, and obviously those who have lost loved ones. Um, and so we start with that, and, and that's actually a meaningful impact in a lot of ways, because it's meant that we've had um, a lot of stress on the medical system, we've had a lot of stress on medical providers, and all of this means that we've diverted resources away from other healthcare. So for the moment, we've focused really hard on this one disease as one condition. Um, but there's also a kind of a side impact on a lot of things. So surprisingly, because we cleared the decks for so much activity happening on the um, specific treatment of COVID-19, that a lot of hospitals are actually hurting financially because by clearing a lot of rooms for the hospitals, to have capacity to treat this. A lot of other things that hospitals normally do as a normal course of operations aren't happening. So they're not doing, or they haven't been doing a lot of elective surgeries. They haven't been treating a lot of patients they might otherwise be treating. Um, 
because they want to make sure they've got the capacity for the pandemic. So all of those treatments that have been pushed back means that they're not paying the nurses, they're not paying the, the orderlies and all the rest of the people. All of those people um, don't have things to do right now. And so there's actually a lot of capacity in hospitals that's been idled because of this. Um, so that's, that's kind of a hidden cost. And then the other side, obviously, is the shelter-in-place orders that have put in place have meant that a lot of people can't work. So a lot of people, and, and a society, an economy, functions by people doing things for each other. Um, what happens in, this, in a normal working economy is that I teach. And so I teach, a lot of people pay me to teach. People who pay me to teach are your parents. Your parents earn money by doing other things that they're good at. And so we all kind of do things for each other and exchange these services. We exchange these services. Um, I don't get direct benefit from what your parents do, but your parents are paid by other people who do get direct benefit. And so society is this whole tangled, um, but actually rather miraculous system of a lot of people doing a lot of things for other people. We exchange money as opposed to doing things directly. And so all this trade has, a lot of it has come to a halt. We can't go to restaurants. We can't go to concerts. We can't go see a play. And so all of these things are currently stopped. And so that's the big economic impact right now is that a lot of the things that we do for other people, we simply can't do right now. Yeah, very nice. So going back to actually one thing that you pointed out, and I think another thing that um, we might touch upon later was that, you know, going into hospitals and those who are getting the treatment and those who can't. The whole epidemic has kind of really made this division class difference, I guess, differences in economic status, let's put it that way. That has been a lot more stark, and I think that has been blown up, I think, is also what we can take away from everything that you've said as well, not just from, you know, who is getting the medical treatment in hospitals, like you mentioned, but also those whose jobs are being lost and those who are, you know, being laid off or those who are still being kept having them, right? Um, from very simple things like you said, getting a haircut or, you know, going down to the candy store. <laughs> I don't know why that's the first example that comes to mind, but, um, you know. Sorry, my hair's long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the candy man, for example, my favorite guy, would not be working, but, you know, the doctors still, but those, like, that's a very big difference. Or, like, even going to, like, lawyers level, right? These uh, higher economic status jobs in comparison to those on the bottom. And those impacts very specifically the displaced people and refugees. We are the UNHCR club, so that's a cause very dear to us and one that we support a lot. And that's one that we would like to talk more about later in our conversation, I guess. But before jumping the gun, what can we do right now? Or what do you think we can say about those just going back to the point of the hospitals and who's getting the treatment and who's not? So right now, to the best of my knowledge, patients are getting treated for COVID-19 um, regardless of their, of their medical insurance. So hospitals are simply treating people. This is a public emergency and they're getting treated in very, you know, the same way that other people are getting treated. So in the U.S. at least, there's no problem with that. The issue regarding um, 
income status. And, and there have been widely documented things that talk about how this has impacted low-income communities more than high-income communities. And so that's a, a part that this, this thing goes into. Um, it's partly because our, our it's, sorry, I got distracted for a second. Um, there was a pop-up thing that came up about Zoom, but that's okay. Uh, so our low-income communities have been affected more by this than others. Um, our low-income communities consists of a fair number of the elderly, and the elderly have been particularly impacted. Right. But also in low-income communities, the standard of, of health has been lower for many years. Uh, part of it simply because if you're struggling to survive, it's hard to do all the healthy things that we would like to be able to do. Right. Part of it's that um, we know that certain unhealthy behaviors such as smoking has been concentrated in low-income communities more than high-income communities. And this particular disease has an impact on people who smoke. So a number of things, there's some correlations in here that have to do with socioeconomic status, um, but to the best of my knowledge, they have not been to date any real issues of rationing treatment away from people who don't have health insurance or, or things of that nature. There's been a lot of funding there. Oh, I, see. I think that That's probably rears its head more so in um, what we were talking about initially or what you were talking about, I should say, in your exposition, you know, about um, uh, the procedures that people can no longer get at hospitals um, or no longer even being offered to them. So I think that that's difficult because it's probably more, um, how, to, how to say this, it's probably um, easier for people to, you know, uh, sustain themselves and, and their health um, in higher income communities, you know, to be able to have a problem. Um, and either a, you know, some people are having um, AIDS come to their house, you know, and trying to practice social distancing that way. I mean, good luck to you, but, you know, um, they're able to do that while, you know, the lower income communities are waiting for hospitals to give them that chance again. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and in low income communities, people also live in smaller housing. So right. one of the things that we know about this disease is that it's much more easily contracted inside than outside and much more easily contracted when you're in close quarters with people. And so, um, and then we put, you know, um, so, so we do that, and that's another factor as well. Yeah, I mean, but knowing that, like, would you say not to, I know the stay-at-home order was put in place for specific reasons, but now a lot of people are having to work from home, at least the people who are lucky enough to be able to work from home and have those types of jobs. But would you say that the stay-at-home order in some ways has its negative side effects because people aren't um, going out as much and because they're actually staying in a closed area more than what they normally would be? Definitely. Um, there's a lot of information out there right now that this has affected society in a number of ways. Um, start out by the idea that, as you mentioned, lower income workers generally can't work on a computer. Um, if you're a busboy, you cannot do that job on a computer. It doesn't work. Um, and there's a number of lower income paying jobs that simply can't be done on, on a computer. So these people are out of work. Therefore, if they're out of work and there's nothing, it's difficult to do anything else, they're generally at home more. And so we have a number of things where we, we're clustering people together in ways. There's a secondary thing that's been going on that isn't necessarily concentrated in low income communities, 
but simply the um, lack of social interaction or the lack of variety of social interaction has probably exacerbated a lot of the um, uh, social and emotional and, and uh, mental health issues that are out there. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a number of uh, reports of potential increases in things like suicide and physical abuse and substance abuse and a variety of things like that, that by not being distracted or otherwise occupied by a job, people have times, time on their hand to let's just say do things that are not as um, healthy. Yeah, right. Domestic actually, abuse has definitely spiked. I, my thought process has actually changed after hearing that. I guess we don't really see like the hidden deaths that are going on. Like I know COVID-19 has, has been like been absolutely terrible and the virus has taken so many people, especially loved ones. However, we also need to realize that there are more deaths going on because what is happening to our economy and also through the stay-at-home orders. Like many people are now becoming below the poverty line and are barely holding on. And we don't really see the struggles that some people go through. I remember, oh, it's kind of a long time ago, reading a study that I believe Columbia University did and it was estimating the amount of deaths that are caused by socioeconomic factors. I believe they said like 5% of UF deaths are caused by poverty and specifically the year 2000, I believe, around 900,000 people died from factors such as poverty, income inequality, lack of education, and so much more. And I just feel like we need to start just spreading more light and awareness. And I feel like COVID-19 has been doing that, has been showing all the disparity. And yeah, there's just so much else going on in our world that we need to start paying attention. Right. And it links back to the healthcare too, because I think, I hope any of you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that so many people filing for unemployment now during this time has also pushed a couple thousand, you know, tens of thousands of people off of their healthcare plans too, um, that they were being provided earlier. So it's kind of having long lasting impacts on those groups, um, on everyone's lives, you know, um, moving even past this um, too. I'll just put this in because I think it's slightly relevant because it's medicine related. Just a question that popped in my head. I know you have some experience in the field of drug development and everyone now has been itching to discover a possible vaccine for COVID-19. Do you think that income inequality will play a factor in which groups get a possible vaccine first? So let's, let's go to that question first. Um, in this particular case, probably not. And the reason for that, and now of, at a, at a micro level, my guess is that income level will absolutely play into it um, in that as they're getting things out that um, certain important people are likely to get the vaccine first. Um, and so that's probably going to be a priority in some cases. I would expect that doctors, as an example, will be high on the list and that doctors and nurses and various people who tend to be higher on the socioeconomic ladder Will, will be among the first people to get it, um, as well as police and firefighters and a variety of other people that society depends on. Um, and will it be possible for the wealthier to try to get earlier on the list to get that vaccine? Oh, probably. But our, the big reason that we're so interested in developing the vaccine is to develop this idea of herd immunity, um, to develop the idea that we have enough people 
who are protected against this so that we don't worry about a societal outbreak again, that society will not, and, and, and it's really important to understand the vaccine is unlikely to stop the disease from ever happening. But what we're trying to do is trying to flatten the curve, as they say. We're trying to get to the point where we don't have major outbreaks. And so it becomes more along the lines of, uh, of other diseases that are prevalent in society and continue to flare up every once in a while, but they don't cause a problem. Um, to get that, we have to immunize broad swaths of society. And, and so we can't just limit the vaccine to the suburbs. Um, if we limit the vaccine to the suburbs, we haven't done anything. So the vaccine will almost certainly be distributed um, at the point where it's developed widely and strategically with the idea of tamping down the disease. In a particular, since the disease seems to have had a major focus in urban areas, I would expect there to be um, heavy, heavy um, application of the vaccine in urban areas and, and see if they can make that happen there first. So that's my guess on the vaccine. Very nice. And I think the, you know, uh, what I've heard is that the vaccine is only going to come in like another one and a half years. It's quite a while and they're not even close to getting that on the market yet. How does the economic world look for you from your perspective until the vaccine does come or if there's even a possibility of a working vaccine that can get out to the public and start, you know, being distributed. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely correct that all, all the information I read is that it will be a while before we have a vaccine. Um, and it's almost certain that we won't have anything until at a minimum 2021 and possibly 2022. Uh, the reason for it is that, well, first of all, I understand there are more than 100 companies currently or organizations currently working on trying to find a vaccine. There's huge numbers of people trying to get there. So which one's the right one? Everybody's trying a slightly different approach. They're sharing information, which is good, but we have to sort out which are the best vaccines or which are the most, the most interesting and appealing vaccines. And then we have to try them out before we go widespread. We can't simply distribute 5 billion doses of a vaccine that we don't really know what it's gonna do. So we have to go through a process of narrowing down the potential candidates and then trying some out and seeing how they work. So therefore we have to go gather data before we can do anything else, before we can finally get this vaccine on the market. So there won't be a vaccine for a while. Uh, it just simply takes time to do it. And there's a possibility we'll never find a particularly effective vaccine. Um, the coronavirus is one of the things that causes the common cold. And we've never found a vaccine for the common cold. I think that the incentives are greater to try to find this because frankly, we shake off the common cold. So if there were a vaccine for the common cold, most people probably wouldn't take it. It wouldn't be worth the trouble. Uh, this one, I think a lot of people would be happy to take it. So I think that there is a, an, a strong incentive for people to try to find it. And I expect that there will be strong incentives for companies to try to find this as well. Perhaps not financial, but certainly from a prestige point of view, as well as a simple matter that we're all members of society, we'd like to see this get over as fast as possible. Of course. What happens in the meantime was the question. Society is gonna to have to find a way to balance priorities, uh, which is what economics is all about. Economics is all about how do we make choices 
when we can't do it all, when we, when, we, when we simply don't have the ability to do it all. And that's what we try to think about, how we make these kinds of choices. Um, and so when we think about economics, or we think about what's going to happen over the next couple of years, is society is going to have to make choices. And it's going to have to weigh the, the health benefits of protecting us from one disease, the COVID-19. Uh, we want to be in, protected from that one thing to the exclusion of everything else, which also has costs. And so we have to balance those things. And this is what our political class is supposed to be good at, is to helping us take information from a variety of sources. The people saying that we need jobs, we need to open up for jobs. The people who are saying we have health concerns, weigh all those things and try to find some good ways of putting them all together. Uh, what we know for sure is that life for the next number of months will be different than what we've seen it before. Yeah, so you talked a bit about, uh, and you touched upon policy response, which is something that I am quite interested to getting into later. And I'm sure um, the others have questions about that. But um, until then, like you've mentioned about how life is until then, does the economic world seem like it's gonna, you know, cause you did talk about those who want to open up right now because you know, jobs are being lost and the jobs need to get back on track. Like the candy man's waiting, he needs to open his candy store, you know? Um, for example, what do you think from then until now, how long do you think this dilemma is gonna pose a problem? And what costs, uh, to be specific for those who, I guess, wouldn't really have that background, is my question. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of interesting things happen. First of all, my suspicion is that businesses are going to be incredibly creative in trying to find ways to make people feel comfortable to be able to resume things that they normally want to do. Um, and to try to then, so what you're going to see is a lot of very overt things that people are going to do to try to make their customers feel comfortable so that we can start serving each other again and we can start providing things. I heard an interesting anecdote. I don't know if it's true or not, but it was um, on a different podcast that I was listening to today where Carnival Cruise Lines apparently plans to reopen for business in August oh, no. and that their cruises are packed. Oh, um, God, no. That's terrible. A lot of the but, infections came from the two cruises. Yeah, yeah. Like the Diamond Princess and something like that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. On oh, the other yeah. hand, cruising is a very popular thing to do. Uh, a lot of people are interested in doing it. And if there's any industry that you can expect is going to go out of their way to try to find ways to convince customers that it'll be a safe thing to do again, it'll be the cruise industry. Now, the cruises will be totally different. Um, they won't be allowing people to go serve themselves from a buffet, um, but they'll have to find a different way to be able to serve food. Um, they'll have to find different kinds of activities that provide for both extra sanitation as well as more social distancing. I'm sure that their engineers have been hard at work figuring out a way to um, use the ventilation systems that they have but create more filtration in there so that they can filter things out. And so what the cruise industry is going to do is to go out of their way to try to find a, a way to make people feel comfortable. 
And I'd expect that movie theaters will do the same thing, that restaurants will do the same thing, and that a variety of things, including expecting a certain amount of cooperation from their customers, um, that a variety of these things are going to come up and we're going to see a lot of creative ways that people are going to try to address both the real biological concerns as well as the, the stronger emotional concerns. I noticed that when I mentioned cruise industry to you guys, you were all shocked. <laughs> you were, you were yeah. like, really? People would do this? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of activities that people can think about that they're just itching to do. Um, but we'll have to find different ways to do it. So uh, another example, and I know that there's a whole lot of people working on this one, is the idea of football. Oh, so yes. Football yeah. Comes up in the fall. Football is nothing but packed stadiums. We'll have to find a way to make people feel comfortable watching football, probably with a, with a less packed stadium than we've had in the past. But you can bet that they're trying to find a way to have some fans in the stands or to find some way to be able to hold a football game. Um, and they may actually be able to do it because a lot of the information about the virus says that it doesn't transmit all that well in, in outdoor settings. And a football game is an outdoor setting. So we may have right. some experiments where some of the more intensely interested football fans decide to try it out and see what happens. I'm curious yeah. about how many of these industries are going to find that it's easier or safer or smarter for them to transfer almost entirely online, too, if that's one of the ways that they're, you know, getting creative. I know that, um, you know, the movie theater industry has all but already been, you know, taken over by that. But they've also been really hurt by this, you know, in particular because, um, you know, movie um producers have started just skipping the theater, you know, releases and just um, publishing it online. So that's been difficult for them. And they're trying to find a way to adapt by providing screenings online that somehow have a unique experience, you know. So I think it's interesting that the examples you mentioned are about how these industries can adapt and, you know, get creative and making things safe in real life. But I'm also curious about how many of these industries are actually likely to remain online um, after this is all over, if they've, you know, transitioned to this, um, and it's just, you know, pushing them forward, um, maybe a little bit early, maybe a little bit preemptively, but maybe it was inevitable in a way that's kind of switched to becoming even more reliant, um, on the internet. I'm curious to see. I think that's a really good point. And, and so let's try out some ideas here. Um, one of the industries that actually may be hurt as much as anything is commercial real estate. And in particular, the idea of going into an office building to go to work. Um, because what happens in an office building, in particular, if you think about downtown kind of office buildings, your typical 30 or 40 or 50 story building in a downtown area, how do you get to your floors? Well, in the 30th floor, you're not walking up stairwells, you're going up by an elevator. If you're going by an elevator, so how many people are allowed in an elevator? Well, if we have lots of people who need to get up to floors in elevators, the amount of time that it takes to just transit back and forth, when you arrive, when you go to lunch, when you come back from lunch, when you go home, an awful lot of time being spent in the elevator. Um, in cities like New York and San Francisco, where so many people ride on public transit, you throw in there, we're now going to take them from riding in the elevator 
and having been in an office building all day, and now they're going to ask them to go in a bus or a subway. Um, and we have a variety of things like that. So a lot of businesses, and, and we've heard this from uh, several tech companies uh, recently, um, you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook and a couple of others have suggested they may, not, they may simply never ask their employees to come to the office on a regular basis again. Well, that then changes the whole market for commercial real estate because commercial real estate is substantially invested oh, right. in office buildings. Um, so if those companies are saying that they can do their work from home, what happens to commercial real estate? I think retail is another area that's really challenged. Uh, think about your typical shopping yeah. mall. And we can get pretty much everything at a shopping mall. I'm not sure about Chloe's candy, but, uh, <laughs> but most everything else we can get from a shopping mall online. And, and actually you can order candy. It's just not as much fun. And that was already brutal on retail yeah. shops. Yeah. Right. And we've seen actually a number of retailers um, declaring bankruptcy over the last two months. Um, Neiman Marcus on the high end, JCPenney on the lower end, J. Crew somewhere in the middle. Um, there's a number of companies that had already been under stress because of online shopping that are going to go out of business. And I think retail is a second sector. Um, Movie theaters are kind of an interesting example because there's actually a couple of different areas in the movie and the whole movie business. Um, you've got the movie makers, the marvels of the world who make all these crazy things that we watch. They have different distribution channels, one of which is a movie theater. But the movie theaters, the guys, the people who actually run those places where you go, that's a separate business. Those guys have an interesting thing. Um, they have a certain age group that they really appeal to, which frankly is your age group, because going to the movies is a social event that you can do, um, and you can get out of the house in order to be able to do this. It's kind of a well, nice thing people, to be able to do. Uh, and and so um, you know to go to the movies is something that a lot of a lot of teens find to be a really attractive uh, social activity. You know, so so things like movie theaters are going to have to try to find a way to make teens more comfortable. Now, if everything we know about coronavirus, actually, we could fill a, th a movie theater with teenagers, and it probably isn't really much of a public health threat because you guys don't tend to get this disease. But as a general rule, they're going to have to find ways to make people feel comfortable sitting together in a dark room for two hours next to a whole bunch of other people and not getting the disease. That's one that's kind of iffy. Uh, we can see the demand for it. And I can see how the demand is going to be hard to replace. Uh, not as easily replaced online because it's not the same thing to watch a movie on Netflix as it is to go to the theater. Right. That's yeah. kind of interesting even with like football or sports events. If they try to make it virtual, a lot of the fun of like going to or watching a football game or going to a football game is actually being there and being surrounded by people. So I think that's definitely a big impact of COVID-19 is the fact that, I mean, people are going to have to consider other ways, maybe even virtual ways of continuing to um, broadcast sports. But the only problem is that a lot of people enjoy actually going and tailgating or watching the sport together as a community. So I think that's kind of interesting. But I was also curious. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, I just wanted to put in there. Have you guys seen where, like, on TV, they show how they they're running football games now? They put like these really. Oh yeah. Skins on the side. 
and they put like the fake cheerleaders faces on those mannequins and put them in these cheerleader outfits and they put like the little um stuffed toys on the side it's, it's cute like, it's like football for introverts <laughs> yeah. yeah and they tell you so there's funny. like this really interesting thing i found where you can like send in your face <laughs> you send <laughs> it out and they'll put it on a mannequin for you and say here we've reserved seat 12b for you it is oh yeah anyway yeah the korean the korean baseball league and also the taiwanese baseball league are back in operations and they're running it with cutouts in all the seats because they don't have any fans in the stands and so we've got these cutouts uh, interestingly because business never stops trying to find ways to do these kind of things um some firms have sponsored this and so below the faces you've got the firm's logo so we've got the firm's <laughs> logo throughout the stadium um in this i was also watching for a little while this morning um a soccer game that the german bundesliga has started operations again and um soccer is very different played in front of no people um uh, it's kind of spooky and also uh, there's just no sound Oh. And so, so it's very yeah, right. no crowd. Yeah, Somebody Sophie would know. She plays soccer too. Yeah, yeah having like the we've parents. got twelve people cheering. Yeah, <laughs> mm. honestly, like everyone scored when we score a goal. And, like, was like whenever there's a goal score, it's like even though there's like only like thirty people, parents, it's just like there's still so much noise going on. It's just like yeah, and then like the other team just like boo. <laughs> But yeah, it is. It would be really weird to play a soccer game in a silent crowd. You yeah. could probably see the difference in that, like when you practice versus when you're actually at a game. But like usually, when, when we practice, there's so much like other things going on because like the entire team, like a lot of different teams, are practicing on the same field because you don't need the entire field to play, and also your own team, your coach. I would actually be really interested to just see what it'd be like to play a silent game. But it also kind of unincentivized is playing. I think that also goes back to what we were talking about, about how this is impacting certain like groups of people too, not just like, you know, athletes generally, but I'm thinking about this in terms of um, students, because I know a lot of people who rely on um, a lot of different things. Like for me, a lot of my friends um, were looking forward to like state debate finals to be able to have something to put on their resume to kind of eke them forward and uh, in college applications and I also have a lot of friends who were looking forward to sports events so that they could um, you know start being recruited for that for different schools so that they could find a scholarship for that um, and now a lot of those opportunities have just been completely denied um, even though they're trying to find you know ways to work around it it's really difficult so I think that's another group of people who have been you know are unfortunately going to have some really negative lasting consequences of this when they don't have the ability to showcase their ability in a place like that. You know, it's not just the professionals, but it's also the students who are, you know, trying, trying to get a scholarship, trying to get recruited for colleges. Um, that isn't really going to be definitely not as easy. I mean, given that it was hard already, um, but a lot harder for them to figure out. Right. And even um, teenagers who work like at say fast food restaurants a lot of them work at restaurants or stores to try to get money back for their families because maybe they are from a lower income family and so they have to actually rely on those jobs to be able to bring money back home to the family so they're also affected like other people as haven said so so there and and there's a lot of i mean we can go on with this one for a while but just as a couple of examples um college sports there's only two college sports 
that actually generate income, enough income to pay for themselves. And actually they pay for the rest of their college, um, or the rest of their programs, which is college basketball and college football. Uh, well, they called off college basketball just when their major moneymaker, the tournaments got uh, just as they were getting started. So March Madness didn't happen. And then we also have college football, which is the big moneymaker, um, is in jeopardy. So what happens there is that the rest of the athletic programs, including all the scholarships that those students would have gotten, um, are in jeopardy because the, the, these activities are not going to happen. Uh, in addition, you mentioned all the, uh, the students and things like that. You've got all the people who have jobs that are associated with um, college sports and pro sports. You've got the vendors, you've got the people who run the concession stands and who have jobs in the concession stands, the ticket takers, the ushers, the very, I mean, this is big business. And so you talk about the various things that happen when we shut down society or when we shut these things down. These are all, again, ways that people do things for each other. Somebody shows you your, to your seat, they're getting paid to do that part of your ticket price is going to pay them. That was an opportunity for them to make some money. Those opportunities are gonna be not there. Exactly. Right. And before we move into our box segment and start closing out this episode, um, just tying it back to our UNHCR club, as Chloe mentioned earlier, and how um, COVID-19 will affect or is affecting refugees, if you know anything about that and their ability to go to refugee centers or find other opportunities and how exactly that's affecting them to the best of your knowledge? To the best of my knowledge right now, we have been fortunate. We've dodged the bullet that in few cases have there been reports of, of this disease going through refugee communities. But if you think, and, and part of that is due to the fact that at least in a lot of cases, they're in more open air environments than, than having good shelter. So that may actually be a weird, I don't want to call it a benefit, but it's a place where their, their hardship conditions um, may not be as bad as uh, maybe saving them from at least this one problem. Um, so we've got a little bit of that that we can think about the, the, refugees being in that kind of a situation, but they're highly vulnerable. They're highly vulnerable that um, one of the things that we've noticed with this disease is that when it hits, that there's an intensive need for healthcare. And we've seen this in a few places in the developing world. Um, there's some places in Brazil, there's some places in um, Ecuador, uh, in a number of countries that are lower income countries, and particularly lower income areas in these communities, where we've started to see reports of outbreaks. Um, some of the more notable players on this scene have not been very forthcoming with information, so I'm not quite sure what's been happening in Iran and North Korea and, and some of the places that are, are particular hotbeds. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a cause for concern, and this would be a place where the international community could, would hopefully be able to step up and provide help. Um, right now, we've been fortunately dodging the bullet on, it, it doesn't seem to have hit yet. Right, and not to extend the conversation too long, but the closing of borders between countries as well due to this virus should factor into it somehow too, no? 
Um, actually, one of the places that um, I've heard about recently is Venezuela. Right. There's exactly. a lot of refugees from Venezuela who have scattered around South America. The problem is that the shutdown has taken away their opportunities to get any work done in countries like Peru and, and Colombia and things like this. So these families have tried to return home and now they have a problem getting across borders to try to get home. So you see some refugees that are stranded in areas that uh, they had tried to flee to them and try to get some economic work, but refugee workers have a tendency to be on the, the lower end of the bracket. They don't know the society. They, don't, they frequently don't have a lot of skills to work with. Um, therefore, they're getting kind of the lowest in socioeconomic jobs. Uh, they're, again, the most vulnerable from that point of view. And the first ones to likely lose their jobs, and not to mention the whole idea that they've got no way of providing personal protective equipment or anything like that to try to stave this thing off. Um, what we can hope for is, like I said, at least being in mostly open air environments and what we know about the transmission of this, um, we can hope that, that there's not too many problems there. Um, I have heard some concerns as monsoon season starts to happen in Asia that monsoon conditions tend to force people indoors um, yep. that you could see some outbreaks outbreaks there um, hopefully that won't come to pass right exactly. yeah that's really nice thank you and you probably let Pooja go into we could keep go into more on this I mean honestly we could talk like an hour more uh, we never got to like policy response uh, I apologize for but um, you know maybe might be a blessing in disguise since we don't want to like go too much into politics. So we're going to avoid that. And I'll let Pooja kind of go into the box segment that we have planned for you. Yeah. So I'll just say on politics real quickly that the politicians sure. are in a really terrible position. They're trying to do the best they can, no matter which party it is. We've got governors and, and people from both parties. They're making it up as they go along. They're trying to do the best they can. They're going to get some stuff right. They're going to get some stuff wrong. So traditionally, we have done a box segment, and we have our guests. So you um, say something inside of the box related to our specific topic and something outside of the box related to our specific topic. So inside of the box, I would want, we would want you to name or give a couple phrases or sentences um, about specific groups that are negatively affected economically or socially by COVID-19. And then outside of the box, groups that are somewhat positively affected by COVID-19. Sounds good. Negative effects by, by COVID-19, I'll start out with the low end of the socio-income uh, ladder. Um, they're overly reliant or they're highly reliant on public transportation. They're densely packed. They're um, typically in cities. It's just, uh, and, and they're typically in a vulnerable situation anyway from a health side of view. They're, I think that they're definitely negatively affected. Um, outside the box, we'll flip it to the other side. Rural America, largely not impacted at all. They tend to live more outdoor lives. They're not heavily concentrated. And the incidence of COVID-19 in rural America is very, very low. Yeah, that was great. And just as before we close out the episode, one last question just to end on a positive note as well is what's one positive outcome of COVID-19 that you see for the future? Just anything that comes to mind. Silver linings. <laughs> Silver linings. Um, 
three things I can think of. First of all, we were fooled this time. We were not ready. We were caught unprepared. Hopefully we'll never be caught unprepared again. That we will, people have been warning about this. A few people, Bill Gates, others, have been warning about uh, the possibility of pandemic. We have dodged a few others, but we haven't seen something like this for a hundred years. Hopefully we'll be more prepared during the next hundred years if something like this comes out again. Um, from a second, a second positive, um, a lot of people have come together and a lot of people have, have renewed appreciation for how much we rely on each other and how much we depend on each other. Um, and so what we can hope for with the aftermath of this is a new appreciation for new ways of doing things, but more importantly, for how much we need each other to be able to do things and how it's really hard to just simply go it alone um, and, and to be a self-contained, as we say in, in economics, autarkic unit. Um, we, don't, we don't do well. And lastly, I'm hoping that um, for many, many people, that the time that this has forced them to slow down and have actually force people to be together again, in particular in their family units, has been a, a time that they'll remember as far as getting closer to their families and the people that they've been together with, and that will appreciate both the families that we've been together with, as well as those that we've struggled to maintain a tie with, and that when we get back together again, these personal relationships, maybe we'll feel a little bit more precious than they have over the last several years. Very nice. Absolutely. That was the silver lining we were exactly looking for. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so thank you, Doc, uh, Mr. Bragg, for coming on today. We really yes, appreciate thank it. You. We've gotten yes, so much you. better of an understanding, I believe, from this whole discussion as well. I think that not only reflects how good of an instructor you are, but also just gives us a lot better of an idea of the world and how we're looking at it through this particular perspective. So I want to thank you again for doing that. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for the conversation. You asked great questions and, and happy to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening to Blurred Box with Chloe, Haven, Pooja, and Sophie. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blurred Box. We release episodes every Saturday. We would love to hear your feedback, suggestions, and questions, which you can email to blurredbox88 at gmail.com. And if you enjoy listening to our podcast, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Blurred Blogs for the latest updates. Thank you. We'll see you next Thanks. week. Bye. Bye.